This series comes from my heart out of feeling so much for people right now with so many things seeming to be out of control and, and a need in our lives for a secure anchor right now, right? Who doesn't need that? What is the greatest anchor, the most secure? Jesus loves me. This I know. That's what we need. That's what you need to know. That's what I need to know. That's what God wants the whole world to know. Red, yellow, black, white. Precious in his sight. That's what the world needs to know. When I was a little kid, I'd run out in the woods with my friends or through a big field. You'd come back in and you'd have these little things sticking on your socks or on your shoes or on your pant legs. You know what I'm talking about? Some people called them chiggers. Some people called them jiggers. I don't know if the guy that invented Velcro, that it came from that or not, but when I think of Velcro, I think of those things that just, you can't get off of your body. I want God to Velcro the truth so deep into your life today and into mine that you have a confidence that you can step out into opportunities and challenges and struggles that are all around us right now, but it's not time to run away. It's time to move in, move in with the love of God. And I want the love of Jesus to be so Velcroed into my life and into your life, into our church, into the people of God in the world that we step up and we stand out and we point people to the glory of God and the anchor that can hold through all of this. This message is for you today. This message that I'm preaching in my part in this series, Velcro, is also I'm speaking this morning to a future generation of young men and young women who you are feeling a calling from God. I don't know what it is. I don't want you just to think of church when you think of that or standing behind a platform, on a platform behind a pulpit or, or an instrumentation, although that can be part, but way beyond that in scope, way beyond that in focus. But I want to speak to you. You're a leader of the future. You have influence now, and God is showing you have influence. But you're going to have more influence and you're going to have an influence in the next generation. And God's calling you to model Christ-like character, not as an actor, but as God creates that character model in you. I want to challenge you to make sure you realize a couple things. That you realize that when you minister, when you influence, when you step in, when you step up, and when you stand out, and people are listening and watching and learning from you. I want you to make sure that you let them know that your giftedness and your talent and your whatever, your influence, doesn't come from you. It comes from the grace of God. It comes from the power of another that is empowering you, the Spirit of God. And I want you to also realize something very, very important as we continue to move forward in the midst of this chaotic world, that people need authenticity. 
and the desire and call and requirement of authenticity will be your job description. But in that authenticity, you will need to know that you have to share and show transparency. Not just your successes, but your struggles. This generation will doubt your authenticity if it's not anchored in transparency. That's why I challenged my staff who are sharing in this four-week series, Velcro and the love of God. I challenged them to share some of their struggles, some of their challenges, some of their weaknesses, because it's through transparency that our authenticity, not only that, but that must be a part because hope comes from hearing stories of how God helped people who couldn't help themselves. And God came through and used people that the world, and even in their own mind and heart, thought, I can't do it. That's somebody like me. Today, my Velcro talk is going to be about my storm. My main storm throughout my life. It's the storm of inadequacy. The storm of inadequacy. Our Velcro verse from the Bible in Romans chapter 8 in verse 38 and 39, Paul says, for I am convinced, he reached a point in his life where he was convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, present or future, any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you ever heard people say, if it's gonna be, it's up to me. If it's gonna be, it's up to me. That reminds me of a time when I, I wasted 700 bucks in a pyramid scheme back in the 90s when some knucklehead came through this town promising our days of financial glory were right up the road if we joined his can't-lose phone card biz. Well, and he said, and this will be the key to your success. You have to think, if it's going to be, it's up to me. And I went, yeah. Lost $700, man. Learned my lesson well. This message is going to challenge those of you who live under the idea, if it's going to be, it's up to me. Here's a checklist for the self-reliant, especially guys. Guys, if we look at a woman to lust after her, we have already committed adultery in our heart. If you ain't going to do that and you're going to live on the high road of holiness and stay in the purity circle, if it's going to be as up to me, isn't going to cut it. When Jesus says, I want you to show love to your enemies, not just hashtag you love them, show it. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who persecute you. If it's going to be, it's up to me. 
If that's going to be, this message, though, is also for people, and you have a tendency to cower back with a lack of confidence. You live your life of talent in the shadow instead of stepping forward with assurance and confidence in the Lord. And you miss opportunities. They come your way and you step back. People point them out to you and you say, not yet. This message is for you. Because you live convinced you don't have what it takes. And I want to bring good news to the I don't have what it takes crowd. Would give you some fresh hope. And then for all those in-betweeners, you're not an if it's going to be, it's up to me, and you're not what, you're, you, and you might go back and forth in that. This message is for you. We're talking about the storm of inadequacy. At 17 and a half years old, Jesus Velcroed my soul to his love. I remember it. I can take you to a spot in the church where it happened. I said, Jesus and I've said this to my friends, and I hesitate to share this because this doesn't happen with everybody. I felt like God poured a bucket of love from heaven on me in that moment. I'm so glad he did. But I've never had and probably never will again have an experience to match that one. And I have a feeling that God won't allow me to because we walk by faith, not by sight. This message that I'm going to talk to you today is about me, the real T. McGee. This is me. Not this was me, and now I've had this powerful encounter, and I walk as a superhero pastor, and I wake up in the morning and caught up in the third heaven with answers about everything straight from God's mouth, and I know how to lead our congregation from here to the promised land. That person doesn't exist. This is me. I have battles and will have battles with the storms of inadequacy. Inadequacy. The state of belief that one is lacking the quantity or quality required whenever a settled belief that you believe you don't have the quantity or quality of what it takes in whatever or whenever needed. Me, T. McGee, I experience this storm. Circumstances and opportunities have often in my life triggered this deeply rooted unbelief belief that I don't possess the quantity or quality of what it takes for whatever or for whoever needs me at that time. Throughout my 50-some years, this storm of inadequacy has come out of nowhere. Other storms settled in for seasons, from my childhood through adolescence and young adulthood, even after Jesus Velcroed me and a change began in my life as a man, in ministry, as a husband, as a father, and as a friend. I've battled storms of inadequacy. 
even though I'm thankful for a rather affirming group of friends that I've had throughout my life, even now. An imperfect but very caring family structure I was raised in. And a fairly good faith enrichment from my childhood up. I battled storms of inadequacy. Weird, huh? Yeah. So all the Dr. Phil's out there listening and watching, and you're too, this one has your attention. You're requiring me right now to answer your next question. Well, Tim, how does this make you feel? Well, Phil, I'll tell you. In the storm of inadequacy, my emotions can be like the following. Sometimes I feel shame. A sense of humiliation or distress about my belief that I'm less than. Sometimes I feel anger. As much back at me as out at others. Back at me because I get angry at my inner ultimate ego of self that I don't live up to. Or if I feel, whether they are or not, someone is zeroed in on my inadequacy, I get angry at them. I don't know if you're amen to me out there or not. I don't know if you're going, that's me, can you see? Wave, wave. Sometimes I feel fear. Mostly out of feeling a responsibility and the possibility of failing others in that responsibility or being rejected if I don't pull through in the ultimate perfect rescue op or miracle impartation or change or having the right answer at the right moment. Sometimes I feel frustration. Man, the real team at G. The angst that I struggle with inside over this has been draining at times in my life. And now the next question from the Dr. Fillers out there. Well, how does this play out in your life, T. McGee? Well, it's weird. In the storm of inadequacy, and I don't mean I walk around every single day going, I'm inadequate. No. But in the storm of inadequacy, I can revert from faith you know, there's a lot of times I walk by faith and Jesus is good. I'm singing oceans, man. Take me deeper. I, oh, I'm you know, having a good day and riding my red spider bike around, listening to tunes. Good day. I'm talking about in the storms of inadequacy. I can revert from faith to an unhealthy hunger for approval. Or I can swing over and have an unbalanced fear of disapproval. A shift to putting out shift to putting off, showing off, or not showing up. I do it sometimes. Sometimes I hide behind victories of the past. If I feel inadequate, I'll tell about a home run I hit when I was nine. Or some sermon I preached, or something I did some war story, some victory, some walk-off home run in the kingdom, or hide behind an anointing, or my giftedness to hide my pain, or my questions, or my shame, or my fear of inadequacy. 
And then other times, instead of that, I just step back. And with all that going on, God has gifted me. You, God's gifted you. You're out there and you're gifted and you're starting to know what they are and you're starting to maybe not know exactly how it works or what it's gonna mean or where you're gonna go or how you're gonna do, but you know there's some things God's put in your life and they're stirring up and they're getting stronger and it's directing you, it's shaping you. But sometimes you think you should do more than you're doing now or you overachieve or go too far when it's not time yet. You want to be in seventh grade and you're still in kindergarten and you want to take the hall pass and go snoop around. What's going on in fifth grade? God wants you to stay put because you got to prove that adequacy of your life. Been there. Other times you underachieve and you want to make foolproof of your grace gifts. You don't want to but there's times that you don't show up and you put it off out of fear. Then for me, as a way to find value when I feel inadequate, I can go to the other extreme and I need a spotlight. Give me a spotlight. Right now I'm in the spotlight. You're not even here. You're out there. But God's given me a gift to communicate. Sometimes even when I'm doing that, And it's usually good when I feel what I'm about to say. When I feel inadequate, God releases more power. But I can go to all kinds of extremes in my broken side where I need a spotlight and approval and show out. And that's a form of pride, which is idolatry. I chuckle, when I was writing this sermon, I chuckle when I, when I think of all the Labrador retriever types of people that I know out there right now, and you're trying to understand someone like me being transparent like this, and you're thinking to yourself, you're trying to fix me, you're like, why don't you just get your beach ball, buddy, in a case of Bud Light and go jump in the waves? You think too much. I know, right? God made me like that. You're right. That's why God made people like you. I'm thankful for all the Labrador Retriever friends of mine that every now and then when I'm stuck in cotton that grab me and say, let's go. Back in my days at Southeastern, my roommate was one of those guys, man. And I'd get all caught up trying to save the world, save myself. He'd say, let's go get a banana shake. Off we go. But let me ask you labs out there. What's your storm story, morning glory? That's why God made people like me. I see you. You do have what it takes. But when it comes to kingdom of God stuff, no, you don't. But keep being a lab. The worst thing that could happen is for you to try to be a chai hua hua. That's what one of my friends in Alabama called a chihuahua. A chai, if you don't want to be that, you want to be that lab. We need you. 
The storms of inadequacy can cause us to shrink back from opportunities God wants us to step into. I want to share a couple of those with you. A long, long time ago, I had a, a, a thing between the Lord and I where he gave me a picture about uh, city unity and the kingdom of God where, where we live. And I moved on that and began to talk to some other leaders about that. That's been way long ago. And we had some initial uh, positive things that took place that way. And right on the, as that started to go, I got hit with major, massive storms in my personal life that knocked me every way but straight. And the distance and time of that made me feel like I didn't prove my validity and character with those guys that were willing to step out, and then I stepped back. The pendulum swang all, would go all the way to the other way, and then I got into the, well, it's because you didn't have what it takes. So I have this, I don't have what it takes, and then I have this other thing where I can come on dominant and strong, and then I hear, what do you think you are, Mr. Leader or something? A couple of years ago, I'm sitting at Catalyst Atlanta, and one of the main speakers there was about to come out on stage, known all over the world, this guy, all over the world. His son came out to introduce him and told a little bit of a story of the bond they had and about a storm they had gone through in a family. It moved me so deeply that all I wanted to do was make sure I got into a line to talk to that speaker that was about to come up because I have a relationship with my son quite the same. And I know the grace of God kept us in a bond through a storm, and I wanted to relate that. I don't know why I'm not a, I'm not a guy that wants to go uh, fan crazy over somebody, and, and this guy definitely isn't one of those kind of guys. But I went and get in line, and I, and I even got a book and bought a book that I already had because I wanted him to sign the book, but as he signed the book, I just wanted to, and I got up to, the, I was the last person in line, they were ready to close, and it was just me and him. He asked my name, and then I just started telling him my story in a very, very short version, but hit all the major emotional parts. And he stopped writing and looked at me, and he said, you need to write a book. I said, I don't know how to write a book. He said, none of us know how to write a book. You just need to write a book. And by the way, he said this to me, this guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he said, do you have any idea how many minister families as well as others need to hear your story? He didn't say a story, he said your story. And I speechless. He goes, write it, bring me the manuscript. Bring me the, you? Bring you the manuscript? Your net worth is over 40 mil, man. You, me? I just stood there, he had to go. I turned around to walk back in the conference center and within five feet away from him, the storm rose up. Don't come to me and tell me to write the story. I already know I need to write the story. Don't tell me and I won't tell you what you need to do. But pray I do. The Apostle Paul struggled his entire Christian life, in my view. Two parts of a seesaw. A seesaw between 
an ego of intellect that was matchless with a domineering personality that God created, but it was untempered at the beginning of his ministry in the kingdom against an angst of sorrow over previously persecuting believers that he loved now. We can see Paul as a superhero, but I think Paul would say Jesus was a superhero and he would never show you his bio brochure that would make you realize paying $300 to go to his conference was justified. If Paul attended LOH and we didn't know him, he'd make the least of these feel like the most important of these. That's the way he was, eventually. Not initially, eventually. I want to share a passage from his second missionary journey, but first I want to give you a brief bio. Jesus Christ comes into his life, and from that moment, bio. His first missionary journey starts about eight years after Jesus rises from the dead. He casts a demon out of a sorcerer in Paphos, creates a revival in the entire city. Following that, he teaches a lesson in the synagogue in Pisidia that causes the whole city to come out the following week to listen. The whole city came the next week. But then he got abused, shook the dust off, and went to the next town without blinking. He healed a crippled man in Lystra in front of the whole synagogue, and they worshipped him for it. They worshipped him for it. They literally wanted to offer sacrifices to him. There's some people in the kingdom today that would have went, bring it. He turned down the offer, so they turned on him, got beaten and stoned for it, left for dead. That included his first missionary journey. He went back to headquarters, told the story. They had a hallelujah gathering, and Paul wanted to go out again. Oh, by the way, in that first one, when the heat got hot, a young man by the name of John Mark went back home to mom. And when they wanted to go out again, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark along, and Paul had a great big fight with the nicest guy in the church, Barnabas, over John Mark that Paul thought was too wishy-washy in battle. At that point in John Mark's life, he wasn't for guys like Paul, but was for guys like Barnabas, not because Barnabas was weak, but because he could minister encouragement to those who were. Paul wasn't about weak at all at this point. And Paul, at that time, was dropping the hammer down. He was putting pedal to the metal like Sherman going through the south, kicking the devil's butt and taking names. And didn't have time for those who came to take selfies on a mission trip and find a girlfriend in a van and text mommy every night. Didn't have time for that. Sometimes we line people up with the wrong anointed leader, even though they have the hand of God on their life. Their personality won't fit the need in the other person's life. When they need to be more nurtured a little longer. Sometimes we don't put people who want to be mommied their whole life long with mentors who want them to get off their butts and give more to Jesus than mommy. I felt like saying that. So Paul takes Silas, finds Timothy, and by the second journey, at the end of it, they've traveled 3,000 miles. He heals a man in Lystra. He has a miraculous dream in the night to go to Philippi. And he gets there and God lines everything up. Rhoda is there at the river. They start church in her house. 
Miracles happen, but he gets beaten. Paul gets beaten near to death. God uses him. And then on to Corinth. But something took place there. He got beaten so bad that Paul got scared to death. He might have wanted to go home to mommy. No Superman anymore. God actually had to give him a vision and tell him not to be afraid. He hadn't been afraid of nothing. Now he was. Don't be afraid, Paul. I have many people in Corinth. After all that power and miracle, we read what we're going to read because God started to bring Paul into a higher place of power through the storm of reminding him of his inadequacies. He's never finished with you. Never. He's Velcroed to you. And we're always vulnerable. We're always vulnerable. We're always vulnerable. But here's what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. He's recollecting when he went there. Here's what he says. Ready? It's in your, you'll see it. I was going to say your notes. You're not here. You're out there. Verse 3. I came to you, ready, in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Weakness, great fear, healer, miracle worker, worker, demon chaser, now sees weakness, great fear, trembling. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. He told them that. That would help a ton of people in the modern day church if men and women of power, when they're up here, would tell them out there that they are not men and women of power. Nothing we have in giftedness or talent or whatever comes from ourselves, it comes from God. And we need to show transparency and authenticity sharing our struggles as well as our successes. Because listen, then this coming generation will doubt, mark my words, will doubt your authenticity if it's not anchored in transparency. 1 Corinthians 2, my message and my preaching were not, and he could have done it, with wise and persuasive words. You talk about well-read, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith, that kid on the street, that broken-hearted, wounded soul won't put their faith in you or me, but in the power of God. There is no man or woman on this earth that can have the type of wisdom needed for the world right now. But there are people that no one even knows who they are. If they will listen to God, can come on the scene or influence people who will be on the scene. Influence them to do the right thing right now. If we ever needed a visitation, not from the heavens, but from men and women of God, it's now. Someone that can speak to Nebuchadnezzar Someone that can speak to Pharaoh and live to tell about it. 
Paul says in the next verse, we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ. And look at the difference. Who is equal to such a task? Do you see that? Who is equal? He gets it. Next verse. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent. See, he's telling them. He's telling them. He's not strutting his stuff across the platform. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves. Our competence comes from God. He has made us competent. This turning point didn't come at the Damascus Road moment. It comes later. Not mentioned when, but we do know more detail. He says, for my own good, I refuse to boast unless it's about my weakness. However, if I would boast, I'd be telling you the truth. In other words, I am the guy that was caught up in the third heaven and saw and heard. And you forced me to say that because you'll only validate the authenticity of a minister on the basis of them saying they saw some vision. Okay, you got me. I did. I didn't want to say it, but that's the only reason you'll listen. Now let's get back to me. I'm weak. And let me tell you how God created the power out of my life. He sent a demonic harasser to buffet my life. And it got so bad that three times I, the word in the Greek is pleaded, I pleaded with Jesus to relieve me of this. And Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power, listen everybody, everybody, next gen. My power is made perfect in weakness. Weakness. Here's a guy that drove demons out of a sorcerer. Have you done that? Healed crippled people for real, not fake, real. Took handkerchiefs that were on his body, sent them out and healed people and delivered them from hellish tormenting spirits for real. He didn't charge money to do it. He didn't send in $19 and you got his healing hanky. Why wouldn't Jesus take the story? buffeting demon away dependence Jesus says my power is made perfect in weakness one of the biggest misunderstandings we have in the body of Christ is seeking to pray away or rebuke the devil away from us when in reality it isn't the devil it's God's potter's hand creating the storm to drive me into deeper dependence and authenticity and transparency so that I can depend greater on him and have more empathy and compassion for others. There are no powerful men of God. Freaks me out when I, when someone, if someone ever call me that or I'll, you'll hear someone getting ready to be introduced. We, we honor men and ministries and churches. There are no powerful men and women of God. 
but men and women who learn through their weakness that God's power works best in dependence are trusted the power of God. Remember in the movie Captain America? I don't know if you, go watch it. It's really good anyway. He says, why me? Why are they gonna do this to him? And the man says, a strong, listen, he says, a strong man has known power all his life but may lose respect for it. A weak man, a weak man knows the value of strength and compassion. What's the cure for this storm, Tim? There is no cure. See, you don't want a cure. You don't want a cure. You want a change. A change in confidence from yourself to Christ. A change in a lack of confidence from yourself to Christ. To Christ. Dr. Phil, you, I don't know if you want to ask me one more question, but if you've run out of them and you're praying about your own thing, I want to give you a question that someone else might be asking, or maybe you are. How does Jesus help you, T. McGee? Glad you asked, because he does. Sometimes, here's how he helps me. Sometimes he lifts the words up to my mind that I planted in my heart from his book. Sometimes he helps me in the storm of inadequacy by taking what I've planted from his book in my heart and bringing it up to my mind in the storm and that encourages me sometimes. Other times he sends people so into my life at just the right moment to speak something encouraging to remind me of God's love sometimes. How does Jesus help me? Sometimes he stays close enough to let me know I can reach out to him but far enough away that I still have to trust him. The righteous will live by faith. It's not the hall of feelers in Hebrews 11. It's the hall of fathers. And other times, here's what he does a lot of times. I don't like this till after. This is the one that I feel like in, when I'm in my dumb mindset that I don't feel as fair because when I feel inadequate, he reverses the process and he brings people in need into my world who are in the same boat and wants to use me to uplift them. And while I begin to do it, sometime reluctantly and it doesn't show up here because I'm showing out, because I know what I'm supposed to do. Sometimes when that's going on, I see myself in the mirror and I get a refreshing back from the reflection. 
And that's how Jesus Velcros me in my storm of inadequacy. Two questions as we get ready to land this plane in Realville. First one. What might you be putting on because of the storm of inadequacy? Sometimes I take my gifts and I take them into a so-called needed limelight searching for approval and validation because the Velcro doesn't seem to do it. What might you be putting on where less could be more if you just trust God? Henry Cloud said, when you think you have it all together, there's a term for that. It's called denial. Here's another question. What might you be putting off? Remember the parable? I was afraid, so I hid your money. Didn't work out too well. Too many people in life need my life and your life, releasing God's grace and gift. So we can't give in to that storm of inadequacy. We have to step up, not back. I know that's hard. We have a reason. I've had a reason. But we're called to rely on the power of Jesus and move forward and give our light into the life of this world that has had hell drop on it. Somebody has to show up with something that's from God. God wants to tattoo the facts of his love on your soul so that in the deepest storm, you won't get ripped off. You won't get ripped away. And you won't rip off others by wanting the limelight when God just wants to shine his light. Trusting God's powerful grace to release perfectly in your weakness. David said, I will give thanks to you, Lord, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. Brian Houston preached a sermon about that, and he went down through the things that we need to know very well. And as he told these things, Darlene Check's spirit, see, God gave Darlene Check the gift of songwriting and worship. And she was just getting started, just coming out into the light that God had for her. And as he was saying, you make your face to shine on me, he asked the crowd of Hillsong to answer, and that my soul knows very well. And then he said, you lift me up, I'm cleansed and free. And thousands of Australians said, and that my soul knows very well. When mountains fall, I'll stand by the power of your hand. And in your heart of hearts, I'll dwell. That my soul knows very well. Darlene Check is writing it. You can listen to it. Go to YouTube. You can watch them in one of their nights of worship. Sing a song. It'll melt your heart. Listen, your storm will continue to come probably your whole life long. I know mine probably will too. You know why? 
God wants it to, but my Velcro won't break. And neither would yours because his grip on me is always stronger than my grip on him. Thank God. And that my soul knows. Very well. So I want to be like Paul. In the last months of his life, he says, the confidence of my calling enables me to overcome every difficulty without shame. For I have an intimate revelation of my God. And my faith in him convinces me that he is more than able to keep all that I've placed in his hands safe and secure until the fullness of his coming day. And that my soul knows very well. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I want to pray for somebody or a bunch of buddies out there. I felt you on the way here in my heart, driving here. I thought to myself, how many out there are sitting like I sat in a season of my life, very war-wounded, had stepped out and got hit hard, or maybe even made mistakes in the way I went out that created more chaos than the charismatic release of God's power. And you know that you not only know that, but others saw it and others think it and you're stigmatized or at least you think it, you're defined by an event or a step or, a, or an opportunity that didn't go well and you feel you're defined by that. There is a word coming straight to you, my brother, my sister, and that word is this. That was a trial run. And he is calling you to step up for the main event. That wasn't the main event. That was a trial run. He hasn't changed. You learned a lot through that. You know what you're up now? You're like Moses, not at 40. You're like Moses at 80. At 40, Moses went, I don't even need to do this. I'll just look this way and that way. I don't need to look that way. I'll go kill the Egyptians. What happened? I've done that. Have you done that? I've done that. Not, I'm not literally. Don't call the cops. I haven't literally done that. Just make sure. You never know today. But when it was time, Moses said, I can't even speak. I can't even talk. Surely anybody would be better than me. That's when you're ready. Because then you know who you must depend on. Not your gift, not your calling, not your stories, on the one who calls. Faithful is he who calls, and he will bring it to pass. That was your trial run. This is your main event. You're Velcroed to the love of Jesus. Bless you as you step forward.